Daniel, as I, as I said earlier, is the content producer for Renew, uh, does all our editing. If you like our books over there, you can thank him uh, for that. Uh, we put out a newsletter uh, with great content, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be passing just this um, pad around, and maybe if we could just start here, we can go just row and then row, and if you'll put your name and email address, we'll put you on... Um, We'll put you on the list for our newsletters. And so if you appreciate what you've heard this week, you'll appreciate getting our newsletter. There's no fluff. It's all good stuff, okay? Thanks, Mike. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started with this uh, third and final class. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be a part of this important event. Uh, I love, love being here. I love the people here and uh, the, the joy and the warmth and the, uh, that we experience here. We just thank you for it. Uh, we're going to be talking about something here that's really heavy, and I just pray that it would be helpful what we what we say. Um, I pray that uh, that we'd be able to uh, have some kind of uh, you know, breakthrough moments where we were able to learn some things, but also uh, just be led by your Spirit during this <clears throat> during this time, uh, so that this is your thing uh, and that you would be leading us. Uh, we thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, can you all hear, hear me okay? Is the levels okay back in the... All right, cool. Um, so what we're talking about, again, is a very heavy thing. Um, we're talking about uh, the critics, answering the critics, but, but specifically the critics in our own minds, the critics in our own heads when it comes to the Bible. So the, the, the call they can kind of get in our heads to call us away from the gospel and into something else. And uh, we're specifically talking about the people who have left behind the faith, or at least left behind the biblical faith for some other kind of faith or religion. So raise your hand if you've had somebody in your life who has left Jesus. Raise your hand if that's happened. Okay, almost everybody. Maybe it is everybody. Um, I, I know what that's like. Um, it is absolutely agonizing. Uh, it's hellish to have somebody that you love who is, uh, you know, hearing hearing those inner critics and and then leaving Jesus behind, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely one of the worst things you can go through. And so that's what we're going to be talking about here. Um, one of the f- kind of fancy words that is used for that process these days, it starts with a D. Anybody know what that word is? D, deconstruction. Very good, deconstruction. And, uh, you know, some people present it in a good light. Others present it in a, a, a very negative light. And we're going to be asking when it comes to deconstruction, uh, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Um, and it all depends upon what you believe is the happy ending to a story. Okay, there are three potential endings to the story, um, the ways you could look at it. And if you want to go ahead and put that graphic up, uh, that'd be great. And uh, again, the, the you know, whatever you think is the best ending will determine whether or not you think that deconstruction is a good thing or a bad thing. So here's the first potential ending to the deconstruction story. Uh, this would be uh, how the story is told if the best ending, if the happiest ending, is when you are authentic to yourself. Okay, if, if that's what you believe is the most important thing, the best ending of the story, this is how the story plays out. I'm going to read this. He grew up in an evangelical home. Church was important to him, youth group was fun, and the Bible was the Word of God with all the answers to life's most important questions. There were parts of the Bible which always seemed weird to him, uh, 
But he never really questioned the Bible. That is, until he really started thinking about some of his harder teachings. For example, there were stories of God's wrath in the Old Testament, which as a kid he had seen as interesting, even exciting, which now began to feel wrong to him. Wasn't God a God of love, not of violent wrath? And the idea of hell, which he had just accepted as a given, began to feel grossly at odds with the concept of a loving God. Even the cross began to feel like a cosmic overreaction, especially when personal sin, which the Bible obsesses about, was beginning to feel less and less like a big deal. Eventually, his old convictions about the Bible's truthfulness and about God's goodness had unraveled until very little of his old faith was left. He still believed in a God of love. He still believed that Jesus was a good example uh, of love for the marginalized. Those beliefs still resonated with him, yet having more questions now than answers strangely made him feel more secure than he had felt in a long time. Building moral convictions of his own based on his growing social awareness felt more right than accepting ancient thou shalts and thou shalt nots from men who couldn't have envisioned today's world. Although it wasn't an easy process, his journey to more of a progressive faith was a liberating story of deconstructing a theology which felt inauthentic and reconstructing a theology that really resonated with his truth. Again, that's how the story is told. If the best ending to the story is when you are authentic to yourself. Okay? Number two. Uh, what if, to you, the best ending of the story is when you are true to your tribe? True to your tribe. This is how the story goes. If the best possible ending is when you are true to your tribe. He grew up in a loving Christian home, or so he thought. Then he became aware of a whole world of oppression, which his evangelical upbringing had insulated him from. He learned about systems of inequity, misogyny, racism, homophobia, and transphobia, which were so deeply rooted in the culture that true change could never come about through nice evangelicals who pretended to care. In fact, he began to see evangelical Christianity as complicit in the oppression that he saw all around him. After all, white evangelicals did things like vote for villains, champion political policies which perpetuate inequity, and use the Bible as a club to beat people into accepting their narrow view of morality. Their views on LGBTQ issues went far beyond merely restrictive to downright hateful and oppressive and abusive. The more focused he became on cultivating solidarity with oppressed people, the more of his evangelicalism he realized he needed to leave behind. This went beyond moral issues to issues of salvation as well. Although it was one of evangelicalism's central practices, the pressure to evangelize people, the evangelize people of no faith or of other faiths, had never really felt comfortable to him. Now evangelism felt increasingly oppressive. 
Why foist Christianity, often the religion of, of white colonialist oppressors, why foist that on people whose native religions were beautiful and transformative in their own way? After all, what made these people of other religions worse humans than the Christians in his church? Many of whom struck him as legalistic in their morals and uncaring in their politics. When he decided to give up his evangelicalism, his Christianity, it felt right because he knew it meant being true to marginalized people. And if the concept of a loving God meant anything, it meant that unlike the Christians he'd grown up around, God would be on the side of the marginalized too. That's how the story is told. If the best ending is being true to your tribe. Number three, what if the best ending to the story, what if the happiest ending to the story is when you are faithful to God? What if that's the best ending to the story? Here's how that story is told. The story of deconstruction. He grew up in an imperfect family, yet they nonetheless tried to teach him life's most important lesson. Even when life crumbles around him, he can still trust God. Yes, they wish they'd done a better job of engaging his tough questions about the Bible. Yes, you know, they wish uh, they had done a better job of reaching out to the poor and marginalized. But they surmised accurately that even if they had both had PhDs in Christian apologetics, and even if they had volunteered every evening of their lives in soup kitchens, their son had developed hostilities against God and against the church <clears throat> that they could not have prevented. In prioritizing his own opinions, what he called his truth, he inevitably found himself angered by Jesus' claim to be the way and the truth. In choosing to side with a coalition of people he felt were on the losing side of injustice, it was only a matter of time before he reinterpreted his ethics to fit his new tribe's view of right and wrong. With God's wrath as wicked, personal sin as unimportant, Christian evangelism as harmful, Christian ethics as outdated and untrue, he was no longer holding to the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, Jude 1 verse 3. Tragically, he was now in the camp of those who had deserted Jesus for a different gospel, Galatians 1 verse 6. He was no longer willing to put up with sound doctrine, 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. So he was suffering shipwreck with regard to the faith, 1 Timothy 1 verse 19. Perhaps he felt he was being authentically unique or even felt like he was being a true Christian, but he was really only conforming to the pattern of this world, Romans 12 verse 1. He had responded unfaithfully to God's faithfulness in his own life and heritage. That's how the story is told. If the best ending to the story is whether or not we're faithful uh, to God. Okay. Good, good to wrestle with. Uh, I want to tell a story. Um, three, three Jewish men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, here's a story. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're part of the Jewish uh, group that are brought into exile when Babylon conquered Judea. Okay, this is, a, this is about 500 
600 years or so before Jesus. Um, these men were handsome, they were smart, they were a select group, they're part of a select group that were chosen to be trained in the Babylonian uh, education and palace, and then they would be serving in the palace. They were, they were to learn the Babylonian language, literature, eat the Babylonian food, and they were given Babylonian names. So uh, Hananiah, for example, whose name means God has favored me, the man with the clipboard looks him up and down and says, oh, so your name is Hananiah. That's a nice Jewish name. How about we call you Shadrach, which means command of Aku, Aku being the Sumerian moon god. Mishael, the man says, okay, Mishael, what does that mean? Well, it means who is, who, who is what God is. Okay, well, we're going to call you Meshach, which means who is what Aku is, the Sumerian moon god. Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped, became, again, Azariah, Yahweh has helped, becomes Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, who is the Babylonian god of wisdom. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to take these, these loyal uh, Jewish young men, turn them into loyal Babylonians. And a huge part of turning them into loyal Babylonians has to do with worship, what they're going to bow down to. Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, along with all the Babylonian officials and all the wise men, are brought to this event where they're going to celebrate the dedication of a new statue. It's an image of gold, uh, 60 cubits by 6 cubits. That's roughly 90 feet by 9 feet. Uh, when the music plays, everybody bows. And Babylon has conquered, you know, the whole Mediterranean world on down to the Persian Gulf and has assimilated all these peoples into its empire. And now it's trying to unite all these people at the deepest level possible, at the level of worship. So bow or burn. So the instruments blare out a soul-stirring torrent of music, and suddenly the horizon surrounding the statue becomes as flat as western Kansas as everybody bows to the ground. All except for like a hasty haircut that misses a conspicuous strand of hair, there's a small clump on the horizon still standing. Three young men still standing. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, what are you doing? But that's just it. They're not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Bind them, throw them into the furnace. They don't burn. Turns out there's a fourth person preventing them from burning. They emerge alive and unhurt. That's a story. What does it have to do with what we're talking about here about people leaving Jesus behind? Um, here's what it has to do with it. Uh, there's three parallels. When it comes to leaving Jesus behind or faith deconstruction or whatever you want to call it, there's always a, number one, there's always a gold statue. So like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, a lot of us grew up learning the Bible. That was our world. Then it gets attacked. But it's not Babylonians conquering our city and offering to us a gold statue to worship. Sometimes it's a philosophy that's challenging our faith and offering us a shiny new worldview. Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had been conditioned to see all of reality through a lens of God. You know, see, it's a God-centered worldview. Now, in Babylon, they were, they were trying to make it a Babylonian-centered worldview. Now, it, in our culture right now, what we're being conditioned to do is to move from a God-centered perspective to a perspective in which all truth and morality 
is grounded in the experiences of oppressed people. I've been a student of a thing called intersectional feminism for a while now, since 2016, and I was like, wow, there's a tsunami coming, intersectional feminism, and uh, man, it's, it is totally here. Uh, if, if you want to understand where we're at right now in, in, in modern Western culture, you need to understand intersectional feminism, and I'll, I'll just give you a little bit here about it. Um, everything is about privilege and power and intersectionality and oppression. So there are people in our, if this is the lens through which you see the world, then you see that there are certain people who are privileged and they have power because they're in privilege. Uh, white people, heterosexual, cisgender, uh, Christians, they have enjoyed uh, unearned privilege in Western culture. So society's been structured to prioritize their interests and, 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 and uh, you know, their version of justice. So as a result, these people exercise power and privilege over other people, and all their decisions are motivated by maintaining power. Meanwhile, you have people who are at the intersections of oppression, people who live at the intersections of oppression. They've been victimized by privileged people in power. So examples of someone who would be at the intersections of oppression uh, would be, let's say, a, a black lesbian. That would be both a racial and a sexual orientation minority. Or let's say a Muslim woman. That would be someone who's both a religious minority and a gender minority. So uh, people who care about justice, if, if, you, if you embrace intersectional feminism, uh, if you care about justice and you empathize, uh, then what are you going to have to change? Well, you're going to seek justice by giving voice to the people at society's intersections of oppression and realize that they have a unique view on truth and justice, and so let them decide what is true and what is just. Um, now, what that means is anybody who has traditionally had power and privilege, you need to view them with a deep cynicism. So if... Christianity, Christianity is part of, you know, kind of some of the framing of the Western culture, and so that would be part of the oppressor, and so if you're going to view things through an intersectional feminist lens, then you're going to view Christianity with deep cynicism. Any, any Christian claims to what is true and false, well, they're just trying to maintain their own power. Anything that Christianity claims about what is good and evil, well, the Christians are just trying to stay in power. Uh, and then when when Christians are told that they're, you know, that they're privileged and in power and then they get angry, we'll see they're just, they're, they're just overacting because they're trying to maintain their power. Um, so if I'm a Christian and then I start to view things through this lens of privilege and power and oppression and identity and all that, um, what's got to change about my Christianity? And this is where it really becomes clear, oh, this isn't just, this isn't just a, a, a different view on the world. This is like a new world. This is like a whole different religion. If I view things this way, what, what changes about my faith? What the Bible says about male and female, okay? We don't ask what the Bible says about what's male and female. Now we've got to ask what, what do trans people say about what's male and female because they've been oppressed. We don't ask what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. We've got to ask what do homosexuals say about marriage and sexuality because they're, they've been oppressed. Um, we don't ask what does the Bible say about forgiveness. We've got to ask oppressed people what they feel about who should be forgiven and who shouldn't be forgiven. We don't ask what the Bible says about who is made in God's image. We've got to ask oppressed people what, what, what they think 
uh, who they think is inherently valuable and who they think isn't inherently valuable. So I basically, I need to stop caring what the Bible says about these things and I need to deconstruct that version of faith and reconstruct it in an intersectional feminist mold. I know I threw a lot at you just now, but I'm serious. This is a very, very uh, huge issue right now in our culture. And uh, that's probably going to be the, the biggest pull away from historic Christianity for you if you have a conscience. Because you, you love people, right? You, you want justice for people? Absolutely, right? And so because of that, there's going to be a huge draw to leave historic Christianity behind and to go with this new worldview. Okay, so number one, when it comes to faith deconstruction, there's always a what? I think it's up there. There's always a gold statue. What's the gold statue in our modern Western culture right now? I'm going to say intersectional feminism. There's other, other names for it, but I'm, that's, a, that's a big gold statue right now. Uh, number two, when it comes to faith deconstruction, there's always a what. It's always a good reason. Uh, what are the reasons given for why we should leave behind historic Christianity, leave behind what the Bible says? Um, I've, got, I've got three of them, all right? Uh, number one, very simple, you want to. Why should you leave behind your, your historic Christian faith? Well, you want to. Why do you want to? Well, because it feels good in this culture to be able to say things like, you know, marry whoever you love. It feels great to be able to say that. It, become, it feels great to be able to say, you know what? Women can do whatever they want with their own bodies, i.e. their own babies. But it feels good to be able to say that. It feels really good to be able to say, you know, trans women are women. What, whatever they feel, they experience that they are, that, it, that's what they are. It feels good to be able to say, you know what, love is love is love is love. Uh, it feels good to be able to say, you know, I'm, I am for the oppressed at every level. feels good. So that's the first reason why it's really compelling to want to leave behind historic Christianity, biblical Christianity, is because you want to. Number two, it's turning the screws a little bit more. This, this is what you, what? You, yeah, yeah, kind of have to. Okay, try getting a good corporate job or being in the good graces of your university professor, or making it in Hollywood, or any of that mainstream recording industry, if you don't go along with full affirmation of LGBTQ views of sexuality and gender, kind of have to, right? Number three, you what? You ought to. And this one's a kicker, okay? Um, and we're talking about Revelation this weekend. And in the book of Revelation, who's the main enemy? Starts with a D, the D. He's the devil, but uh, he's, he's posing as a what? A dragon. You got it, a dragon. And the dragon in the book of Revelation has three puppets. And the first puppet is the harlot. And the second is the beast out of the sea. And then you have the beast out of the earth. Okay, those are both in Revelation chapter um, 13. Now, I'm, I'm going to disappoint people because I'm not going to be able to say, well, here's who the harlot is, and here's who the, you know, I, I don't know that stuff necessarily, I could guess, but what I am going to say is that those three puppets of the dragon correspond very, very nicely with the three reasons for why we should leave Christianity. Think about the harlot. What does she say? You, you, know, you, you know you want to. You want to follow the dragon, because there's all sorts of cultural seduction involved with with leaving Christianity behind. The second one, uh, the beast out of the sea, what does he do? Well, he's all about persecution. He's saying, you know what, you kind of what? You kind of have to, otherwise 
you're going to die. But the third one's the kicker. This is the one. Here's the deal. If, if, you're a, if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. You're like, I love the Bible. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. You can withstand the first two. You really can. Because you can say, yeah, okay, I, I get what the culture's trying to pull on me. I'm, I'm going to still follow Jesus. That's the harlot. You can say, you know, I, I kind of see that, you know, they're trying to turn the screws. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of see the persecution, the hostility coming. I, I'm still going to follow Jesus. But it's the third one that's a tough one, because the third one is the beast out of the earth. And the beast out of the earth, guess what he looks like? Oh, this is huge. Looks like a lamb. Speaks with the voice of a dragon. Looks like a lamb is able to do miracles. What are we dealing with here? False Messiah. We're dealing with something that looks like Jesus. Something that poses as what's right and true and just. And yeah, it's, it's very possible to say, you know what? I'm not going to fall for what the culture's throwing at me. I, I can see where, I, I see that coming. I'm not going to fall for the persecution. I can handle this. But when it comes to the part of culture that says you what? What's the third one? You ought to. Now that's, that's a tough one because we're very conditioned to be able to say, you know what? I want to I be a loving person. I want to be a just person. I want, to, I, I want to do whatever I can to help people. And we should, right? But this is, this is where it gets us because the, the culture is saying, if you really want to be a loving person, if you really want to be a, a person of, of, of mercy and compassion, then you will go along with what we're saying. And that's the tough one. Is this making sense? All right. Moving right along. Um, I got to come over here. The reason's given. Okay, so... Um, We've gone through those. We're back over here now. Uh, there's always a gold statue. In this particular cultural moment, I believe the, 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 the gold statue being offered to us is called what again? Intersectional. We've got some articles on it at Renew if you're curious what that is, because I know it's kind of a you know, big, weird concept, uh, you know, big word or whatever, but uh, check it out on renew.org. But I, I do believe that if you do that, it'll be fruitful, it'll be helpful, kind of see where we're at culturally. Um, there's always a good reason, okay? Say them with me. You want to, you have to, you ought to. And then finally, there's always a game changer because everything I've painted so far is like, wow, this is tough. And what I said yesterday about you guys being the courageous ones, I totally mean it, okay? You guys have a lot of courage to be able to stand against some of this stuff and, and stay faithful to Jesus even amidst you want to, you have to, you ought to. You guys have a lot of courage. And I want to tell you, there is a game changer. Okay? There, there is some, a way that you can respond to this that will allow you to keep staying faithful to Jesus. Um, back to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel chapter 3, uh, verses 16 to 18. This is right before they're thrown into the furnace. Here's what they tell the king. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They say this, now, now listen to the, the either or. It says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I hope you get that. What's the either or there? 
Okay, uh, either God saves us and rescues us, and if, if that's the case, then great. Or um, we die, and if that's the case, you know what? We're fine. That's what they said. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, this is the Apostle Paul, and here's what he says. He's, he's contemplating, you know, am I going to die? Am I not? And eventually he is killed for his faith. Um, but here's what he says, for to me, and again, listen for the either or. He says, for to me, uh, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Either or, he's like, so if I live, man, that's great. I just keep on serving the Lord. That's awesome. If I die, <laughs> even better. Um, Romans 8, verse 28 to 29 says this, and this is Paul again, he says, and we know that in all things, what's, how, what, how many things, what kind of things? All things, right? All things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then Paul goes on in Romans 8 to talk about, you know, okay, death or life, uh, angels or demons, present or future, height or depth. None of it can separate us from God's love. All of it can be used to conform me to the image of his son. Nothing can separate us from God's love. God can use whatever happens to conform me to the image of God's son, okay? Um, it is 11.40. What time do I need to be done with this? Anybody who's, Mackie? Okay, all right. And Brian, where are you at? Are you in the room somewhere? Perfect. All right, so I'm gonna have Brian come up in just a little bit and share his thoughts. Um, but I, I wanna say quickly, um, so my grandpa uh, would make stuff. He made stuff out of copper and wood and he was just very, very uh, creative, artistic uh, kind of a guy. And uh, he made this, um, this teepee looking thing that had a rock that came down on this wood platform and uh, it was called the, uh, the, the Old Weather Rock. And basically, here's what it says. So again, there's this teepee and a little, little a strip of leather and then a rock, and then you got the, the wooden platform is kind of dangling above the platform. And it says, uh, in this Old Weather Rock, it says, if rock is wet, it is raining. If rock is white, it is... No, a bird. No, just, yeah, it's snowing. You got, uh, if rock is moving, it's... Windy, if rock is casting a shadow, it is sunny. If rock is hard to see, it is foggy. Very good. So that's our faith. I mean, it really is. That's totally our faith. If, if you can get that third one there, you know, it's a game changer. Uh, our faith is, is totally that. Okay, if this was a calculator, it would work like this. If you are, you know, you're somebody who you trust and you follow Jesus. And then so you say, okay, future, and then you, you punch in, uh, future plus trust in Jesus, and then press equals, it'll say, the love of God draws out Jesus' likeness in you. Okay, all right, uh, you punch in future plus height plus depth plus trust in Jesus equals the love of God draws out Jesus' likeness in you. Okay, you punch in future plus height plus depth plus demonic attacks plus trust in Jesus and equals, and it says the love of God draws out Jesus' likeness in you. Here's the game changer. If you know that you, if you trust in Jesus, 
you follow him, you know that you can't lose, then you'll be able to make it through. You can make it through hostility, you can make it through cynicism, make it through hardship, make it through lies. You know, I'm going to get a little political here, I guess. But you can, you can make it through, your church can make it through the people who are like way on the right, who want to reimagine Jesus in a, in a rightist political image. You know, so he's, he's wearing a MAGA hat or whatever. Um, your church can make it through all the blue state people who they want to repaint Jesus, re- reform him into a, a woke Jesus. If, if you get that, you know, you, just, you trust, you follow Jesus, and you can't lose. If you get that, you can make it through whatever. And you'll, and you'll be left standing in the end. And this culture, man, it's crazy. This culture is high anxiety. This culture is, is, is fraying at the seams. And we keep following Jesus. We keep trusting him. And we're going to be left standing uh, in the end. So that's my encouragement to you. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And you're, you're facing a ton of reasons to leave Jesus behind. But if you can get that, you know what? If I trust and I follow Jesus, I'm going to be okay. And we're going to win this. And I can't lose. You're going to be okay. All right. So I've asked Brian Cunningham, my, my good friend and wise friend, to come and share some of his thoughts to kind of close this out. And as he's coming up, any, any questions that we can help you wrestle with? All right. Yeah, back here, yeah. Yeah, you said clash of worldviews and postmodernism. Very, very good. Yeah, in fact... Um, deconstructionism is a term that was coined by a guy named um, Derrida, and Derrida is like one of the fathers of postmodernism. So mo- modernism was the idea um, that you know we we can we can take this hill if we just have enough uh, scientific knowledge and and use our our heads and and we'll be able to conquer everything. And that was kind of an Enlightenment view. Uh, and then comes all sorts of crazy stuff in the world, World War I, World War II, and a lot of people are like, wow, uh, that didn't work out so well, and they become more cynical towards things like progress and towards things like truth, and that would be postmodernism, the idea that uh, we need to get past, uh, even, even the idea of someone saying that they have the truth, we need to be cynical towards that. So this whole thing about deconstruction is very, very postmodern, and whereas modernism created a lot of challenges for the church, uh, postmodernism is as well. So, yeah, yeah, definitely check that out. Any other questions? Thanks for that. Okay. Yeah, thanks. All right, Brian. Okay. All right, so just this is just going to be um, really brief, but, you know, just to reiterate what Daniel talked about, and I know Wes alluded to this last night in, in, um, in his talk, you know, these are, these are some ideas that are not just causing division in society, but it's also causing division in the church. And so one of the things that I've noticed is there's, there's not just a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of anger out there. And so being in campus ministry, I've, you know, I've, I've seen former students and I've seen what they've, 
what they've posted on their social media pages, and there's just a lot of anger right now over certain things in society. And I'm not up here saying don't be concerned about certain things. Obviously, there's, there's a reason to be concerned about certain things. But, uh, but the question I had is, well, where is that passion for the lost to give them the good news of Jesus to keep them out of hell? It's like they're more concerned with circumstances than eternal reality, their eternal destiny. And with that comes this, this vitriol, this, this anger. And, and what's happening is, is they're seeing other people. Well, this group of people, they're the enemy. And not that they need to be loved and to be reached out to, but they need to be defeated. And this anger is, what, is what's really driving that. And, and, the, and the reason it's driving that is because there is no love for their enemies. And the reason there's no love for their enemies is because what they are basing their worldview on is not based on truth. And if it's not based on truth, not only can there be no love, authentic love, founded upon God himself, but there's also no joy. There's no joy in the Lord. There is a perpetual state of anger. And this is diametrically opposed to what we read in Ephesians 6.12. When Paul talks about that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And so with all this division, all this anxiety, all of this anger we see out in society today, our job is not to retaliate with fire with fire. Our job is to love and to reach out. Not to tolerate, as was mentioned yesterday. Jesus never says to tolerate because it's weak. It is too weak. Jesus says to love. And through that, now lives can be authentically changed. And when they're authentically changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit, there's where where the real joy of the Lord is to be found, regardless of what's going out on in the culture today. So that's it. Any other final thoughts or questions or anything? All right. Let's give a round of Yeah, so the newsletter um, that has been passing around on that yellow tablet will be, if you haven't had a chance to sign it, it'll be over at the table during the lunch hour. So we're right at the lunch hour. Um, I'm not sure if all the other classes are wrapping up, so just kind of maybe hang out in here until you see some of them starting to come through. Uh, And then we'll grab lunch. So why don't we have a prayer uh, for for lunch? God, thank you for providing. Uh, We don't want to take for granted even a single meal. Father, I'm just uh, mindful of my brothers and sisters around the world that uh, wonder if they're going to eat today, and uh, we're privileged to enjoy just some good food all weekend, and, and so uh, God bless the food. May it nourish our bodies, bless our brothers and sisters around the world, and um, just help us all to remain faithful like we talked about here today. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.